All right, hello everyone, and welcome to The Legend of Portalcast, a podcast dedicated to discussion of Avatar The Last Airbender, The Legend of Korra, and today we are talking about finally some new content that's going to be coming to the small screen for Avatar The Last Airbender, and that is the new live series that Netflix will be producing and releasing. Uh, so today, uh, just with me for right now, I have Kristen. Hey! Um, so, well, first off, because it's been so long since we last recorded, how have you been in the meantime? It's it's busy in the city of Baltimore, especially during the summertime. Um, lots of tourists, lots of fun times in the aquarium. Um, I'm very happy to be relaxing finally, enjoying the fall, and uh, certainly the holidays, too. Halloween was epic this year, and I'm looking forward to the rest of my holidays. So, all good things so far. Nice. Did you dress up for Halloween? Absolutely. <laughs> what did you go as? Uh, I have a shark onesie that I modify every year, and I try to take different sharks that have another animal or object's name attached to it. Like last year, uh, there's apparently such thing as a dwarf lantern shark, but there's also a green lantern shark. So I put <laughs> green lantern comic symbolism all over my shark onesie, and I had a mask and everything uh, as a green lantern. Uh, this year I was a whale shark. Um, it was a little bit simpler. I have um, a collection of whale pins and other whale-themed jewelry that I wore with my shark onesie. I wanted to do a lemon shark, but I kind of ran out of time for it. I was actually going to – I had this whole cool plan in my head, and then it was like, no, 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 I don't have time. But uh, next year, next year, lemon sharks. <laughs> That's awesome. Very cool. Um, all right. Uh, so uh, we're just going to get right into this um, and first talk about just kind of the uh, press releases that came out um, that announced uh, this new series. Um, so we first uh, the news dropped uh, for this on September 18th of this year, um, and it was something that completely came out of left field for everyone I talked to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, no hint drop. Just suddenly, like, "Hey guys, Avatar." It's like, yeah. what? <laughs> um, so uh, one of the first uh, folks to uh, release it was Deadline, and um, just to kind of read an excerpt from what they uh, had in their press release, uh, Netflix is set to produce a live action series based on Nickelodeon's mid two thousands animated series Avatar: The Last Airbender, and is bringing aboard original creators Michael DiMartino and Brian Konitzko as executive producers and showrunners. This new series will be made in partnership with Nickelodeon with production to start next year. So, uh, first off, tell me what was like your initial, like where were you at when you found this out and like some of your initial reactions? Yeah, like I said, I when I heard the news, I did not see anything too specific about it at first. I just saw some of the articles popping up like, oh, Netflix is set to do like Avatar The Last Airbender li live action series. And I was like any good Avatar fan, I sucked in some breath and I held it for a moment like, oh, oh, should I be excited? Should I be terrified? Like, I mean, I think we all naturally have that reaction because we all remember the last great disappointment of our of our lives. The last time we were promised uh, bigger, better Avatar content. But when I actually took the time to read some of the news as it was coming out, and I did find this later in that same um, um, deadline uh, release, that what uh, the showrunners had mentioned was that not only were they going to be assisting in this, but they were going to ensure that it would be a culturally appropriate uh, cast and that they were going to reimagine an even deeper series with more 
uh, at, with a heavier look at the characters, the stories and everything. And, you know, hearing that from the word of mouth, from the canon producers of the series, I, I was like, okay, I, I feel significantly better <laughs> about the <laughs> prospects of where this can go. Because these are the people who not only created it, but for years have been steeped in its lure, whether it's the first series, the second series, the internet content, the the comics, you know, they've produced so much content surrounding this world, its mythos and its characters. And I can't imagine better people to be, you know, helping produce the this reboot, essentially, that hopefully will actually add more to the world. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, I'm glad that you brought that up, too. I mean, that was obviously one of the biggest critiques of um, M. Night Shyamalan's Last Airbender was the fact that it was a whitewashed cast. Um, I mean, you had... Sokka and Katara and Aang all were white actors. And obviously, you know, it's the water tribes are incredibly influenced by Inuit culture. And, you know, Aang is uh, the air nomads are based off of Tibetan monks. And, you know, when you do that, it really kind of shows this insensitivity to the, you know, not only the like the source material, but also just like everything that that source material is trying to honor and pay homage to in terms of how it's represented. I, I, I definitely agree. And, you know, that that was such a fun part of the series was it really explored, uh, I mean, even though it was the, this made-up world with made-up cultures, it, it was steeped in reality and it was steeped in very different cultures. And what's really important about these kinds of shows are it – it not only helps bridge understanding between different cultures when kids who aren't used to seeing anything outside of what they're used to at home get to look at other ways that people live, how they think. You know, it, it brought up themes of things like reincarnation, which, I mean, how many people discuss reincarnation with <laughs> kids nowadays who aren't part of a culture that does that? But mm. also for all the kids in the U.S. who are already part of these cultures, you know, they're seeing representation in a really cool way of of the culture that they've been brought up with and it's being re represented in this really popular series that people of all walks of life absolutely fell in love with. So, you know, it, they really did a disservice to the show by not honoring its roots and how it was created culturally and spiritually. You know, they just really tried to focus, I think a little bit too much on how the cool aspects of the bending and, and Aang's, um, need to to grow really quickly against this really daunting task and they just stripped it of its soul essentially they focused too much on the cool aspect and not enough on what actually made it a good show absolutely and one of the biggest things that they stripped away from it was the humor um and you know obviously that's i know for me when i was watching the, when i was watching the last airbender for the first time it I one of the, the the immediate criticisms I had was just Sokka is a wallflower of a character in this and there is no depth to him and there is just there's none of that humor and so much of you know that world you need that you need that comedic relief um it's funny uh Abigail and I just watched uh the two towers tonight um, for God knows like the umpteenth time and you know something that I'm always reminded of why that why I love that movie so much and what it does so well across uh, the whole trilogy is that even though um, Gimli is not necessarily a comedic relief character in the books his role in the film 
is very much that, but it's so important because of the heavy, intense material and everything that kind of happens. And it's so much more of, as a modern audience, you know, you need that balance. It's something that the Marvel movies have just really done so well uh, over the past 10 years is they know how to balance the action with these moments of reprieve and humor because you got to be able to just give the audience time to breathe. Um, and the last airbender just took itself too seriously and it didn't have fun with the world. And I think that that was one of just the biggest issues. And what I'm hoping that, you know, with this series is what we're going to see. And again, Mike and Brian, executive producers and showrunners for this, um, which gets me into what I want to discuss in terms of what do those roles mean when it comes to a film set. Uh, so the executive producers are typically, uh, they're the ones who pour a lot of finances into that. If you'll notice in the credits, sometimes you'll see a variety of different names. Sometimes it's the actors themselves who are in the movies. Sometimes it's the director. Uh, it depends on who kind of, you have to reach like a certain threshold of investing your own money into the project to get that uh, executive producer status. Uh, ones who are kind of in a lower level are known as associative producers. So from one end, you know, they are investing their money in this. And that I think is something that is incredibly important uh, to remember because they are putting, you know, their own livelihood on the line. I mean, in all of this, like, you know, of course they're getting residuals from the show and everything, but still it's, it's a major investment to put in there. Um, and knowing how much they got burned last time with, you know, the last airbender, it's, it's a lot to, to bank on. Yeah. And, and, and I get it. I mean, whenever you produce something as big as, you know, the multi-million dollar movies that we frequently make nowadays, whether it's Marvel uh, and other fantasy based things like Lord of the Rings. I mean, it, it is a lot and people do gamble based on uh, the reputation of actors, writers, the director and stuff. And, and I feel bad for the people who gambled on the last movie, but I mean, looking at this, I mean, I, I would, I would gamble on it. I guess my biggest thing is, when, when they wrote Avatar The Last Airbender and they completed the series, while there are certainly some things they could have explored more for the most part, it was really well wit written, really well developed. Um, it had so much about it. And very often when we see something being rebooted, it's either continuing a story or a series or it's coming back to enrich something. And, you know, part of the issue with a reboot of Avatar is the first question is, especially if we're going to re reboot the the exact same storyline, the question becomes, what do you have to give to this new story that didn't already exist? Mm, absolutely. And, and I, I think that that's also what kind of gets into what they're, the fact that they are the showrunners uh, for this series and not just alone the executive producers um, because they were also executive producers on the uh, last airbender. So they, at that point, but they weren't, calling the shots um and if nope. yeah <laughs> obviously um but if you're uh familiar with like a tv show um like breaking bad uh the uh it's one of my favorite television shows of all time 
the showrunner for that, Vince Gilligan, um, he directed some episodes, wrote some episodes, but for the most part, he's the one who's in charge of steering the ship of the story. Um, you know, obviously with television shows, you have a lot of moving pieces in terms of the crew that's involved. Uh, you have directors for different episodes, you have your team of writers, and you all have to kind of Basically, the job as a showrunner is to corral all of that talent, all of those people together, and uh, come up with like the best, most cohesive story that you can, which is a really good thing that they are the showrunners, because that's essentially what they did for the original series. They wrote, obviously, some of the episodes, but for the most part, what they were doing was basically gathering all the talent, getting the writers, working with the artists, working with the animated studios, I mean, the animation studios. So they were working with all of these different disciplines and departments to make sure that they could execute that vision. So it's not like something that they they don't have experience in. It's something that they are very familiar with. Obviously, live action comes with its whole host of new challenges and everything. But in terms of steering the ship of the story along that path, they do have that experience there. But yeah, like I, and and that's what I'm really excited about. I, I really, the thing is, is while I enjoy Avatar The Last Airbender at, in its original incarnation, it was in its heart of hearts, a kid's series. And it treated themes very delicately. It did approach very complex themes, things like uh, uh, death, uh, different uh, issues with moral ambiguity. I mean, there's, I mean, if we're going to really delve into it, there's racism and fascism in it, genocide. I mean, really deep themes that are touched on very delicately. And if they're going to reapproach it, knowing especially that their original, I mean, even the kids who would have watched the series growing up would it, are at least going to be, you know, in their early 20s typically at this point, um, they can really kind of make a slightly more mature avatar, not necessarily in the sense of making it extremely dark or really like, uh, inappropriate. Um, but just not needing to, cause I, I know that a lot of the original content in the beginning was them trying to figure out if the series was even going to make it through its three seasons. Mm -hmm. Um, so they weren't able to develop the story as well as they had probably hoped. And I'm sure there's so much content that they wanted to touch on that they weren't able to, but if they're going to focus on an older audience now, you know, they might not necessarily have to dance around um, these really complex and mature themes as much. And they might be able to actually address them in much more deeper ways that they may have originally wanted. Um, because they usually used a lot of the culture and spirituality of the show to help uh, uh, lessen really painful things like when monkey Atzo was dead and he does, he realized that the entire air, air nomad nation had died. Um, they try to be very reassuring by showing the spirit of the air nomads and having monkey Atzo there and say, you know, I've, I've never, I'm always with you, you know, really kind of lightening that blow. And it, it's, it was wonderful content. I remember crying. I mean, even mm. for how light it was, I yeah. cried, but that isn't something that you just, handling it over obviously and he does carry that with him and it's only really touched on again uh when he's trying to open up his chakras so i am really hoping to see a, a, a much more 
uh, rich character development, um, more more uh, mature themes that are explored better, um, and even in maybe even some more exploration of minor characters because there are minor characters that people fell in love with that we could only just barely skim the surface of before we had to leave them and keep going on our adventure. And people are like, what? No. Yeah. And I mean, you know, you have, I mean, think about like a character like Suki. Suki became such a big fan favorite, even though, you know, she was only in the first season in one episode, then came back for the serpent's pass in the second season. And then was there for the boiling rock up to the finale for the rest. And, you know, obviously, it's like you have that opportunity, like you said, to dive deep into this. Uh, so, I mean, the big thing with Mike and Brian in what they really excel at, I think, is world building. Um, they really created such a believable world in this world of Avatar. Um, they, from all the different nations to all the different cultures to the subcultures, um, how economics work, how... Uh, trade and war affects it all. And there's just, there are so many forms of government too. I mean, in all those things changing in this very volatile period in that history. And as we see not only in Avatar, but also when we get into Korra, how much that timeline of that world progresses in such a believable way um, in terms of, you know, how, you know, the Fire Nation rose to power uh, how they were able to defeat the Air Nomads. How, you know, after, you know, end of season two, what happens when, like, a another nation usurps this huge kingdom and the kind of the fallout that happens from that. So, obviously, I mean, there there's so much that they understand from a deep level of how this world works and all of the different moving pieces. And I think that one of, I think part of the beauty of, Avatar The Last Airbender is that they had to distill down the the story at its core and then tell it in that succinct way. Granted, they still had some fun romps, uh, you know, in episodes that really kind of just were, you know, nice little one shots that really touched on, uh, you know, different cultural elements like I'm thinking of from season three with the Painted Lady. That one just kind of does it affect the overall plot? Not really, but it is this. But it was so much fun. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So, you know, you have that opportunity to still have those um, episodic, uh, you know, episodic episodes, (laughs) those episodic stories where you can just kind of, you know, go off on a, you know, on a tangent. So I think of like a series like Buffy where, you know, they will have these episodes where, you know, it's kind of a monster of the week uh, problem like okay well we have this threat how do we deal with this threat it's them problem solving and then they hopefully resolve it you know you usually get character growth from there all kinds of stuff but it's also it's during those episodes too you get more of that world building you learn more about these cultures and the people living in all of these different nations and i think that you know given this opportunity and what they wanted to talk about doing was uh you know, really exploring that world in a farther place. But just kind of bouncing real quick off that whole painted lady thing, I do completely agree that I would almost even argue that while it wasn't necessarily a plot progressing episode, they're definitely character building episodes because again, it's the kids being exposed to more cultures and lore Mm -hmm. and it's really letting you see them grow because as a self-proclaimed Katara hater, 
I thoroughly enjoyed her in that episode. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I really thought that it helped me not hate her character as much. Not to say that her character is poorly done, just from my personality to hers, I know I would not have been her friend. I would have been tough in the beginning of their relationship <laughs> the whole time. So uh, I, I did get this quote here. And basically, th- this was uh, Mike Martino when he posted on Instagram. Uh, and he said, uh, we can't wait to realize Aang's world as cinematically as we always imagined it to be. And with a culturally, culturally appropriate, non-whitewashed cast, it's a once-in-a-lifetime chance to build upon everyone's great work on the original animated series and go even deeper into the characters, story, action, and world building. So, uh, and then just the last line he says, Netflix is wholly dedicated to manifesting our vision for this retelling, and we're incredibly grateful to be partnering with them. They're checking off all the boxes of what they would want to do. because, And I think why this also came out of such a left field for a lot of us as fans was that Mike and Brian both said after Korra, that they were just, they were wiped. They were so exhausted from just, you know, working. They worked Avatar for over 10 years of their, and probably even longer than that, 15 years of their life, if you can't, the time of them coming up with the concept and researching it and pitching it and then everything in between. It has been their life for so long. And they said that they needed to take a break, which is understandable because it's like so much of their life too taken over that. And absolutely. And at the same time, though, going back to the whole being able to to fully realize the series, you know, we, we've discussed this before, how in the early episodes, they really they were really just trying to push the series and they might not have been able to add as much content. And that really was kind of a bit of a theme throughout the series, because as well written as it was, you did have those gimmicky little middle episodes. And and sometimes, you know, we would hear about. Um, later on how certain things were kind of cut, like we would have delved deeper, but we just couldn't because they weren't given the flexibility they needed to really tell the story the way they wanted to. And you brought up the quote that they had about having this once in a lifetime chance to build upon everything. What I like is the line that follows that, that says Netflix is wholly dedicated to manifesting our vision for this retelling. And we're incredibly grateful to be partnering with them. Mm-hmm. And that to me tells me that Netflix is, is like, you know what? You don't, I'm, I'm hoping this is true, but this is, uh, I see Netflix is doing what Nick failed to do and saying, you have our support. You mm-hmm. tell the story the way you want to, you don't cut things if you don't have to, um, I do imagine that there will still be some of the restrictions that there typically are with series, like how long a season goes, how long an episode is. Um, You know, for all we know, we're only going to get three seasons again, but maybe it's going to be 30 episode seasons, or maybe we'll get six seasons where they divide the books in half. Mm. We'll get 20 episodes per, get 40 in total per season. Like we don't know. Um, But I'm, I'm really hopeful that, the reason why they took this on after the exhaustion of the original series is that Netflix is giving them the flexibility to tell the stories the way they want to in a way that's going to be more gratifying to them. Because the only reason doing something that you're that passionate about is exhausting is when you have to fight for every inch of it. Mm, And especially in Korra with some of the themes that they touched on in Korra, they probably had to fight for a lot of their content. And that is exhausting. And I'm hoping Netflix is going to be true to that. And they're going to let these guys flex their creative muscles and actually tell us the story that they've wanted to tell us in Avatar. 
Yeah, I mean, that's such a great point. And I, I think focusing in on that last sentence is so important, too. Uh, and for for the fans who don't know, uh, just to kind of show you an example, we've talked poorly about Nickelodeon before in terms of some of the things that they have done to inhibit or to handicap the series at times. And one of the things uh, from Cora was at one point in the season, I believe it was the fourth season, uh, Nickelodeon came to them and said, look, we're cutting your funding uh, for this. Uh, and you basically, they, they had to make a decision of we either have to fire someone, let someone go from our team, or we have to do an episode that is not going to require the same amount of a budget. And uh, in the fourth season of Korra, there is an episode called Remembrances, which uh, for like animated fa- anime fans or uh, cartoon fans, it's what's known as a clips episode where they replay older clips from the show. And sometimes that that's like it's frowned upon because it's like, oh, geez, like, you know, you know, it's like you're just rehashing stuff that we you know already knew and you're not like, you know, giving us anything new. And but the thing was, Mike and Brian and they came out with a public statement. I remember they posted it on Facebook and Instagram saying, look, this was the decision we were faced with, but we could not bear to cut someone from our team who has like basically helped us get to where we are with this series. So that is why we are doing this episode the way that it is. And that was the kind of just one example that we at least in the public know of how Nickelodeon just was just not wholly invested in the show. Um, And I mean, that's the thing. They just did not see the show for what it was because it didn't bring in the same kind of, you know, money from toys and everything, which is, you know, that's the old, you know, the, the old modicum for any animated show is that if you don't sell the toys, then you don't have a series because that's all that they gauge in terms of how many people are actually watching this. Which gets me to my next point about why it's so interesting and why it's such a great fit for Netflix to take this on. Because the biggest thing that Netflix has is data. They know how many people and what kind of folks are watching their programs, how long they're watching into the episodes, if they're binging it, if they revisit it. They have all of that data. And at a time, they had Avatar The Last Airbender on Netflix. And I guarantee... That what they saw for those numbers was like, holy crap, there, there are so many people who are watching this show. This fandom is very much alive and well. And we saw that when this news dropped. Like every single Avatar fan who you know was still either posting or hadn't posted in a while, everyone was coming out. Everyone was posting about this. And people who I didn't even know were Avatar fans were sharing this. And were so excited about this opportunity. Because so many people have connected with this show. It's something that really transcends all different ages. Because you have people who are, you know, later in their life. Who are young kids, teenagers, young adults. I mean, it's crazy how much this show has touched so many people in such a strong way. And Netflix knows that. And I think that that's why they decided to make the gamble and said, we want to do this and we want to invest in you. And we know that we're going to be able to deliver it to an audience who is going to watch it. And 
for the folks, and I will kind of say this, I know some people have been on the fence about whether or not they want to give it a try. And, you know, when the show does come around, obviously you give it your chance, you make your opinion yourself. But like, as fans of this show, we do have a job to do. And that is to watch it when it comes out. Because the thing is, that's the one unfortunate make and break of data. Because if they realize that people aren't watching it, they're going to cut it. And that's also the danger of it. So it's like, if you don't have people watching this, then they're like, all right, well, we didn't see this many people watching it. We're not going to invest any more money in this because, you know, it's people aren't watching it. So that's just kind of my little mini rant. <laughs> I totally understand the, the reasoning behind why this may have suddenly been rebooted. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm really hoping that they understand that this, the series is an investment. I think Nickelodeon severely underestimated its own fandom. And when we talk about things like sales of products reflecting the fandom, I mean, as, as a millennial, <laughs> or at least a person who was born just before the millennials and who is usually put into that category, I mean, we live very frugally. We have, uh, we're known for our frugal lifestyles and you pick and choose what you buy very carefully. So no, I'm not going to go out and buy 15 avatar figurines. I know there are probably some avatar fans that do have like all the figures and stuff, but, um, I, I live in a very small apartment. I don't have a lot of space. I'm not, I, I invest very carefully in things and the things I have invested in from Avatar is largely, you know, I have them on, on DVD and Blu-ray and I do have the comics um, because that's, what's most important to me is the content. Um, so if, if their expectation is the things beyond those, I think they just don't understand their fan base very well. Absolutely. Um, and you know, and uh, you know, with that in mind, I want to, I want to talk a little bit about uh, Netflix as a platform, what they've been doing recently, some of the other shows that they have um, produced and put out, and if that's like what kind of insight that may give us in terms of what to expect. Um, so, in the the past five years, Netflix's original content has skyrocketed. They have invested in so many different uh, shows, feature length films. They have absolutely just exploded in terms of their own original content because as we've seen over the years in terms of all the different streaming services that are out you know what is it that makes one service unique from the other and what Netflix really kind of started was all right you know we want people to come specifically to us so we're going to create content that can only be shown on Netflix and that was how they really kind of locked in a lot of their uh, subscriber base and brought people in. And because of that, because they have this steady stream of revenue with their subscriptions, that means that they can invest in these projects reliably. Whereas when you have networks or you have, uh, you know, feature length films, so much of that is dedicated or it's determined by what the, uh, you know, the marketing is like or what the advertising is like, you know, what kind of commercials are we going to be able to air what kind of, uh, you know, ads or, you know, like different sponsorships can we get? Things like that will determine whether or not a show or a film can be made. But with Netflix, they have that built-in revenue with their subscri- with their subscriber base. Um, so, like I said, their original content has exploded. Um, they have uh, taken on some of the 
uh, some Marvel shows with Daredevil, Luke Cage, uh, and Iron Fist, which we'll get into in terms of, you know, what kind of happened with those, to everything from Stranger Things, uh, Orange is the New Black, and most recently, The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, which, by the way, features the voice actress who voices uh, Janora in Legend of Korra as Sabrina. Oh my god. <laughs> I did. I did not know that. I didn't realize it until after watching like the first episode. I'm like, wow, her voice sounds so familiar. And then like you know, I looked it up. I'm like, oh my gosh! Not only is she that, but she also was the one who played, um, oh gosh, uh, the daughter's name I cannot remember. Uh, Don Draper's daughter in Mad Men. Oh wow, God, she she's got <laughs> quite the repertoire she's building for her career. Absolutely. So I mean, in you know. There's obviously a lot of these amazing, you know, uh, shows and everything. They've pulled uh, incredible, you know, talent for it. They've had, you know, shows like Ozark with Jason Bateman. And they have, uh, I mean, it just there's there's so many different um, just pools of talent that they're bringing in for these shows because people realize that, you know, this is the way a lot of people are watching TV and films now. So with that, uh, kind of rewinding back a bit to what I mentioned before, the shows um, uh, with uh, Luke Cage and Iron Fist. So recently, Netflix also, they canceled several shows, uh, almost over a dozen, that uh, in a recent kind of purge of like their high profile shows that did see some popularity. And... Personally, the more I kind of researched it and the more that I thought about it and thinking about how they would think as a company is that they are investing in some really interesting properties now in really interesting shows that are requiring higher production value in terms of the sets, in terms of the talent that they're bringing in, and then also in terms of special effects. And because they have so many programs that they are putting out there, they have to realize, okay, one, are these performing well? If they're not, or uh, in the case of Luke Cage and Iron Fist, I think that's going to like a Disney streaming. That's a whole, whole another uh, <laughs> discussion. Can of worms. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, I think that they are pulling some of these shows so that they can really invest and do these series right. Because the thing is, you have. To, I mean, obviously, we'll get back to the Last Airbender. One of the biggest critiques was how god awful the special effects were. Oh my gosh! <laughs> <laughs> the trauma, the PTSD. I mean, and the the, the most the most the, the most famous or infamous uh, one was the uh, the scene with all of the Earthbenders. You have like six earthbenders all doing this complicated like you know form set and then they move like a freaking pebble across the screen <laughs> and it's yep. just the saddest thing in the world and you're like oh god and you think about Toph and you think about just like what incredible things that earthbenders can do and you're like this is just such a disservice and and Toph really wasn't like graceful like a graceful dance or anything i mean she did have some grace but for the most part i mean she was like a good earthbender she was very brutish in a lot of her movements and she didn't do a lot to make her movements she might have strained against big objects but for the most part her her movements were very simple and basic and and i mean that suits earthbenders for the most part how they're designed and you know <laughs> they they really did put flair in unnecessary places where they could have probably invested a little bit better in their cgi <laughs> 
Absolutely. And, you know, I think that that also is going to get to a really interesting point about what, you know, at least for one of my hopes in terms of, you know, you have Mike and Brian as the the showrunners here and what kind of folks that they're going to bring in. Um, so we already know for one fact that Jeremy Zuckerman, who is one part of the track team, which is uh, the group of composers that made the music for Avatar and Korra, which is such a huge part of that series. I mean, like, it really is. I mean, the music it that they came up with, everything. absolutely. And I mean, it it really is just so embedded in the tone of the show. And we know that they are bringing him on for that. And I guarantee that they were like, look, <laughs> you know, we have a few stipulations. <laughs> One of them is that we have to bring on Jeremy Zuckerman because, I mean, he was so integral in terms of forming the overall mood of the show. Yeah, like the cultures all had their own music. The characters had their own music. Then there, of course, was the music for different settings, whether it was playful, serene, sad, battle. Like, I mean, there really is a story told just through the music. If you listen to the music of Avatar, you can probably guess what's happening just based off hearing the music. It's amazing. Absolutely. So in terms of bringing those people in, I think that one of the smartest things that they could do is bring in someone, if not him, like Sifu Kisu, who was the martial arts advisor for the majority of the bending on the show. Um, he was the one. If you watch, if you ever watched any of the behind the scenes for the show, it shows that like him working with the animators and showing them all of these different forms and so much of what that beautiful, incredibly unique action that made. Avatar such a standout in terms of other fighting shows, you know, quote unquote, uh, of its time was that it really put attention to detail in terms of the form work. We know all of the direct influences. We've talked about it on previous episodes with airbending being directly from Baguazan and with waterbending Tai Chi and firebending Northern Shaolin and with earthbending Hungar, which it's really interesting that you bring up uh, tough because they actually brought in a different specialist for Toph's earthbending, and I yeah, because hers was special. Hey guys, just uh, taking a quick break for a couple announcements and also to fill in the gap about that information that you just heard. Uh, at the time, I did not have the name of the man who did the uh, martial arts advising for uh, Toph's specific style of earthbending. Um, and his name is Manuel Rodriguez, also known as uh, Sifu Manny. He's one of the world's only masters of the rare martial arts form known as uh, Chugar Southern Praying Mantis. And it's honestly uh, so influential into Toph's style of bending. So that's just to kind of fill the gap there. Um, But just in the meantime, I just wanted to thank you again for listening. Um, Thank you so much uh, for uh, joining back on with us after the hiatus. Um, we are really excited to bring this episode and, uh, we're going to be releasing some older episodes in two weeks, uh, just so you know, um, and then we'll be uh, back with any more news we hear about this series as well as some new discussion. All right. Thanks so much. Enjoy the rest of the show.
So yeah, so he was the one who basically was, he brought Toph's particular style of earthbending to life. And it's giving that expression to the characters in a way that makes not only their combat unique, but how much that combat reflects their personality and their values. I mean, so much of the beautiful part of Zuko's arc was when he like couldn't firebend anymore because he had such a change in his moral code in the way that he viewed life that the way he fueled his firebending was, you know, through the rage and anger that he had before was no longer something that he could do because that was not his driving force and energy. And I just, I loved how they address that and how much different his bending became after that. And it, it, it's, it's fascinating too, because it's, it, it, it really was part of that richness of the series that, you know, it wasn't just going to be, this is your element. It wasn't going to be, this is your culture. Everything had a very specific flavor, a specific profile that was built around not just the culture, but the characters. So, you know, we just talked about how there's very specific martial arts for the characters and their bending. And then you would have um, all of these different concepts borrowed from a lot of these um, Asiatic cultures built into the series to give homage to what inspired it, but to also kind of spice things up within the series because, you know, we don't talk to kids about how much their emotions and their, their perceptions of life play into how they're going to live and how it's going to impact how people react to them and how the world is built around them. Because a lot of your world is how you perceive it. And Toph's an interesting character because she has to perceive things quite literally in some sense because she doesn't get to see the subtle nuances. She has to listen for them or, you know, if something else is going on, she has to be able to tap into her really special lie detector ability. Like when, <laughs> um, when Jet was attacked by the Dai Li, mm. um, the most impactful moment in that, in that episode was when Toph's walking away and she says he's lying. You know, mm. it wasn't... It, it wasn't just that um, Jet was potentially going to die. He had tried to reassure characters. We had had this whole buildup since he had come to the Earth Kingdom as a re- or it, come to Bossing Say as a refugee. We'd have this whole buildup of his character and and what he went through and and you know a character being attacked and being grounded for a moment isn't a big deal. But when Cough when Toph basically says he he's lying about he, him being okay and all but saying he's going to die. You know, there, there's an emotion that you feel as a, as a person watching, but there's also those emotions that the characters are going to feel and they carry those emotions with them and it impacts their ability to perceive the world and how they perform. So it, it, it makes complete sense that if you had the ability to bend, your bending is going to reflect your emotional state because that's how you're perceiving the world. And that's what you're going to put into the world. If you're an angry person and you're a firebender, uh, you're going to cause a lot of hate and discontent, both with your firebending and your attitude, which is a lot of what Zuko incidentally does. Mm. And then as he starts to reel himself in a little bit, um, you know, we see small visages of that, old Zuko hanging out um, in the episode where he and Katara go on their side adventure. You know, <laughs> he's ready to, to kill that dude that, that, that 
killed Katara's mother. And Katara is the one, I begrudgingly admit, is the one who really grows in that episode. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but, but, but you know, and, and it's true. Like, people can't just change on a dime like that. So it made complete sense that, that Zuko still harbored some of those issues. But it was also an opportunity for him to grow and seeing Katara forgive and him learning how to, to be a better person that was going to shape him into being a better leader. And, you know, we see that later on in Korra. He really is a completely different person. And he's a little bit more like his uncle by the time we see him in Korra. Yeah. And, you know, his abilities are far beyond what they were when he was a teenager, full of angst. He's, he's, he really came into his own and he has his own dragon. Absolutely. And I'm glad that you brought up to us in terms of, you know, that uh, emotional response too. I mean, think about the very first episode of the series. Oh God. Katara is just like, so upset with Sokka and it's through that anger that she unwittingly sets Aang free from the iceberg (laughs) because it's, you know, she, there's all that that's kind of like pent up and building and everything. And then it comes out through that moment and she does, a form of bending that normally she would not have been able to do. Cause I mean, she was really fo- just like moments before was focusing on getting a fish out of the water in a, in a water bubble. And, you know, now she's cracking icebergs, but it's, you know, it's destructive too, because of mm-hmm. like what those like unchecked emotions or what those emotional outbursts can lead to. And, I mean, we saw that with Aang and his firebending in uh, the episode of The Deserter. Uh, and <laughs> Absolutely. And Zhao. I mean, that's like the, the perfect example of it, of that attitude towards bending going in such a wrong direction. And, uh, you know, and again, it's these things that a more in-depth show are going to be able to really focus on. Um, and I think what's really exciting about you know, them doing a reboot instead of just doing something that's completely new is they get to really revisit the beginning there. And you have to think about how much Mike and Brian have grown as artists and as individuals since those initial episodes, how much they have learned from not only art, but writing and world building in the perspective that you have, because I think when you when you really watch any series and go back and watch the beginning, it's always so much fun to go back and see the characters at such a early stage and seeing the writing, and you're like, wow, they were they were figuring this all out, and like maybe it's not like the most you know polished or anything, but you know it's you know where it heads, and when it gets to that point, it's amazing because of that payoff. Now they get to revisit all of that. They have all of this knowledge and experience they've gained over the years, and now they're going to be able to tap into that to really bring this material to another level. I agree. I think that if this if Netflix is going to give them the creative flexibility that they need to tell a story the way they've always wanted to, you know, it is going to be awesome to have the benefit of their years of experience and learning now. I'm sure there are so many times where after something was finished, they would look at, they probably looked at things and went, you know, I really wish we'd been able to do it that way. I'm sure there's <laughs> literally a wish list of theirs of what they could have been able to tell, to, to, to enrich. I mean, I, we, we touched on some of the mythos a little bit more deeply in Korra, especially with the first avatar, mm. but even still, I mean, we still don't actually know the the source of the lion turtles and how energy bending 
as a as its uh, I, I guess original form before it split into elements or however there's I can't remember how it was painted exactly but just the pureness of en- energy bending and where all this began you know I want more than just the beginning of Avatar I want the creation myth I want to know the cosmic egg this world hatched from you know I I really want them to be able to tell as much and as full of a story as possible not just about the characters but about you know, I want to see their inspiration because, you know, as somebody who enjoys writing her own stories for fun, there's there's something about seeing what drives people, what inspires people. Um, because as somebody who writes, I understand how how hard it can be sometimes when you have a simple idea and you're trying to flesh it out in a in a way that makes sense that's going to reflect well and be a a good story that people can relate to and is going to be a a rich and fulfilling story. And at the same time, if you are basing a story off pre-existing cultures and ideals, you know, doing it in a way that's very respectful to those cultures that that's going to be able to uh, fulfill a lot of the uh, best aspects of a culture. Um, it, It takes a lot of work and research and emotional and mental investment that I, I have to respect. And I really want them to be able to tell their story because I can't, as somebody who's never had to write on a budget, <laughs> I can't imagine what it's like having somebody tell me, oh, you can or can't do this because of money or because, you know, uh, we don't agree with this. You know, I'm in my personal world, I'm allowed to write whatever the heck I want. <laughs> so, I, I really can't imagine their struggles and being stifled essentially in their storytelling. And I really want them to have the opportunity to give us the full avatar world as best they can. Absolutely. And again, I mean, that really goes to show, you know, the challenges that they went through with uh, both avatar, the last airbender and legend of Korra and the roadblocks that they had to surmount and all of the limitations that they had to overcome were really building their toolkit in such a profound way. Uh, when I went to film school, one of the you know main themes of a lot of the projects we did was you are limited. You are you know you're only given this many resources. You have to make a film that's only three minutes long, and it was all things that were restrictive because it forces you to be creative in so many different ways. And those were the muscles that Mike and Brian and their whole team were building over the course of both series. Having those challenges with Nickelodeon and the pushback, they were really, they had to come up with really, really creative solutions. And I mentioned Breaking Bad earlier. Uh, We were talking about showrunners. You know, one of the, one of my favorite parts about that show was the fact that the writing team would write themselves into corners so they had the overall show Bible, which is kind of like the main course of the story, which Vince Gilligan was the one who kind of came up with. But the writing team, they would put the characters in these positions and they would, you know, you would figure out like, okay, how are we going to get out of this? And they would have to come up with incredibly creative solutions to get those characters out of that. Or if they found that a certain character wasn't working... They just had to find a way, all right, how do we get rid of them? And so much of that adaptive writing uh, really lent itself to creating a series that was incredibly unique and broke a lot of ground. 
So with that experience that Mike and Brian have, and now they're in a uh, essentially a playground with Netflix in terms of being able to show what they want, tell the story that they want, and utilize the cast that you know they really want to bring together. And that's the other thing we have to remember. Mike and Brian, they were also the ones, along with their casting directors, who brought us this voice cast for both Avatar The Last Airbender and Korra. They have an eye for talent. You think about just, I mean, you Dante Bosco as Zuko. I mean, can you imagine? There's no one else that you could imagine Zuko being nope. played as. <laughs> or Iroh. Yeah. I mean, there, there really isn't. Like, even if it's, it's, it's not just the voice either. I mean, the voice is definitely a big part of it. But, I mean, what they put into the voice is what mattered too. So mm-hmm. it is really a mixture of talent and just the quality of the voice. And, you know, it was weird too when I learned that Dante Basco did this because I'm sitting here thinking like, that kid from from uh, Hook, like <laughs> he's got to be like he's got to be so much older now. How is he playing a teenager? But he did it. He did it so incredibly well, and it was an amazing performance. And you know, I I initially liked Zuko's character because I was in a grungy little goth stage at the time when I watched the TV <laughs> series, and he was fully relatable. Him and May Man were my power couple. <laughs> <laughs> And I really enjoyed watching them, too, because that was actually a really dynamic relationship. You know, mm, they yeah. when they did Aang and Kintaro, it was really drawn out. It was very awkward um, and understandably first relationship. He's over 100 years old. She's a teenager. It's really awkward. I get it. <laughs> but Zuko and Mai's and May's characters are, you know, they're complex and it's not a perfect relationship initially. I mean, you feel like they're a great couple, but then you watch their, their growing pains together as, as they enter this conflict. And it's, it's really cool because, you know, I was sick of perfect relationships in TV series very often because nobody has a perfect relationship. Mm -hmm. We all struggle through growing pains. Um, even with really good relationships, there's, there's going to be some level of strife. And sometimes it's not necessarily what you create against each other so much as how you're reacting to the world outside that you can't control, whether it's losses, hardships, things like that. And, you know, Zuko's character, um, you know, I really, Loved his dark side, but by the end of the series, as I had grown with the series, I really appreciated his evolution because I especially love um, what's essentially like he's essentially my anti-hero. Because while we view him as a protagonist, he's not really the true protagonist of this or sorry, protagonist, antagonist. He's not the true antagonist of the series. Um, we know it's Ozai in the beginning, but we view it as Zuko because of his actions. But Zuko's really just this lost kid trying to figure himself out through the whole series. And he's more of just an anti-hero throughout the series, more so than um, an antagonist. Because he does things that help Aang, whether he knows it or not. Uh, stories like the Blue Spirit and, um, you know, n- basically not letting Zhao get, <laughs> get yeah. the upper hand on him and things like that. Like, he... he, he I mean, he doesn't know it. He doesn't know that he's not truly against Aang. He's he's got this own idea in his head as, as to what he's supposed to be doing. But I mean, his his growth throughout the series and the fact that he ends up not being the true villain, the true bad guy, 
you know, is one of my favorite things. I love a series that can take what seems like such an obvious villain and turn them into some somebody you actually really love and can't imagine the story without. That's really good story writing to create a, a character that you would want that you would be like, oh man, I hate this guy so much, I want him to die. And at the end, being like, whoa, what what that this person's? I mean. That's like me and Sansa Stark, too. I mean, God, anybody who's mm-hmm. read the Game of Thrones books, Sansa Stark is so freaking annoying. And, you know, as the series progresses, though, and as things happen to her and she builds up the experiences and begins to decide who she wants to be, you watch her actually grow into somebody that's actually, like, kind of awesome. Mm-hmm. And you didn't expect it. You were ready to hate her throughout the series. The annoying big sister who's a big priss. No, she uh, she really comes into her own. And I love those <laughs> characters that you start out hating and love in the end. Yeah, and, you know, I, I'm i glad that you brought up, too, the, the Zuko-May relationship, too. Because I, I remember when I was uh, we were revisiting the finale um, and... Uh, you know, when I rewatched it and Abigail made this great point of like, you know, she's like, you don't see a character like may take the trajectory that she does either. Because a lot of times with that, like archetype of like, you know, maybe it's like the more, you know, with like the, the moody teen that is like the girlfriend, you know, it, it doesn't always end in the way of like her standing up for what she believes in. And like the, when she confronts Azula, it's this incredibly powerful moment. And to kind of bring this all in with our discussion, it's like those impactful moments that we got to see that built over the time of the original series, they are going to be able to lay even more of that groundwork for those emotional and character payoffs later on in the series. Because one, they know the trajectory of the story of where it's headed. So they have that benefit of knowing, okay, we know where this is going. Now we can really refine of how it gets there in terms of, you know, like you were saying earlier in the episode, uh, you know, Aang dealing with the death of his people. You know, so much of... Until the guru, I mean, that whole time, so much of Aang is, he is running away from confronting that emotion. He does not want to come to terms with it. And, you know, because, you know, because he doesn't really have that opportunity to really have those more introspective moments or have those, uh, have that time to do that, it's, we don't get to see it until a major plot point goes on, but that can be something that is through very subtle nods of, you know, he, you know, maybe sees like an air nomad artifact in the wild and just seeing that image him, like kind of seeing that nothing has to be said, but that is one piece of, you know, that emotional turmoil that's still building inside of him, him running away from that. And what is going to happen when that payoff comes and I think that's what's most exciting about this series is because they they know the structure. They know the story that they want to tell. And now it is coming back to it and it's refining it. And it's telling it in a way that is going to dive even deeper into the world building, into the cultures, into these characters that we know and love. And really having fun with this new like medium live action it's going to come with a lot of challenges and everything but you know 
I think that they're just there's there's so much possibility for so much good stuff. And again, I you know when I first reacted to all of this, I was so positive and I was so happy. And I kind of had a moment where I like I had a flashback of when I got so happy and excited about the last Airbender film. And, you know, the thing was, you know, what was really tough is that even though there were warning signs coming out and being like, oh, I don't know about this. Once we saw the casting, once we saw like some of the clips, we're like, okay, well, we got the, the immortal words of Sokka. Yeah, I just still got my positive attitude. Yeah, benefit of the doubt, benefit of the doubt. Oh my God, please don't. I know. And I, you know, it, it is weird already feeling invested. Like I, mm-hmm. I'm really so hopeful. And it is largely because I know who's writing it now and that it's going to be a series because I, after The Last Airbender, I am... And it's not just because of how The Last Airbender was done. Let's be honest. You cannot tell as meaningful a story as the Avatar had in just one movie or even like a couple of movies. You know, it's like Lord of the Rings. I thoroughly enjoyed the Lord of the Rings stories. But, but, I mean, we know there was so much content trimmed from it. But at the same time, Lord of the Rings wasn't set in episodes. It was it, it was this fluid story. You know, while there is some fluidity to Avatar The Last Airbender, it it is very challenging, I think, to try to take the choppy storylines, especially from the beginning when they were still figuring things out, the choppy storylines, and make it into something really fluid that's going to express it as well as it should be. Um, I I would definitely see this... You know, I could definitely see Avatar The Last Airbender being more of like a Marvel movie series where you get like 15 movies mm. versus, you know, a trilogy like Lord of the Rings um, being consolidated down because, to and, be fair. And even then, they still as, had such a hard time consolidating it. I mean, you have the extended edition. To be fair, as much as I love Tolkien's writing, he really does like to describe his landscape. So let's oh, be he fair. loves it. Yeah. <laughs> trimmed out just the descriptions of places in lord of the rings we would cut out half the half the half the series right there um but still there is a lot of content there was a lot i am still i'm still pissed that there wasn't even like as much of a nod to tom bombadil in the movies Mm, but that's mm -hmm. that's something completely different um (laughs) but i am very hopeful because i mean if somebody told me that Tolkien had risen from the dead and was going to write his own Lord of the Rings movie, I would lose my mind. I would yeah. be like, yes, this is the original creator. This is Iluvatar. This is the the god of this world, essentially, who has created it, who has breathed life into these characters. He is the one that I want to tell the story. It's the same way with Mike and Brian. These are the people who have created this world that gave it life. They are the ones who know every nook and cranny of it because it only exists because of them. And they really are the ones that deserve to tell the story. Not to say that other people are incapable of telling a really good Avatar story. But if we're going to talk about um, the people who are best suited to flesh this world out, it is going to be the original creators. And it I mean, if anything, it's going to give people more content to create with, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, we certainly Absolutely. hope so at least. Um, and and just and you know, I think uh, just some final points to kind of get on to, and you know, I something I really want to bring up in terms of when this series was announced, and I think what was so exciting about it was seeing the fan reaction. I kind of touched on it earlier in terms of like everybody coming out and posting about it and the enthusiasm behind it and everything, but it, I mean, it's just it's 
something obviously without we wouldn't have this podcast if it wasn't for the fan community because this podcast originally was born out of just a bunch of folks online who were so passionate about this show we're like let's just talk about it <laughs> and the community is just it's it's crazy because it's just it's so diverse it's so global too i mean we had people from all over the world who were watching the show who were on like the forums and were just you know being a part of this discussion i mean it's like i i would have i don't know if i would have you know had conversations you know necessarily with you know people from all of these different countries across the world otherwise because I, I mean, I lived in a very like small white bread town in Virginia, so I'm not gonna. Be, it's not really the hub of diversity. <laughs> so I mean, nope. like it's it's amazing how like I I always forget about how like wide sweeping that this show was, and that's what's so exciting about now. Netflix is this incredible platform to for people to really share in this because. So many people are able to watch it. It's so accessible. You don't have to have a cable subscription. Even if you only want to watch the series for one month, you can pay for one month of Netflix and watch it (laughs) for like, you know, 10 bucks or less. And it's like that, the the fact that you have to be over and just watch it all at once. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, that's, that's just what's so interesting about, uh, you know, them choosing to go with this platform and it'll be interesting to see how they release it. Netflix typically has released everything on mass in terms of a series. They release all the episodes at once um, for people to kind of binge through them. Um, Hulu has done uh, releases where they, they will do like a network television. They will do a week by week release of some of their shows um, to kind of like build hype, which is going to be interesting to see what happens when this, first season drops what the response is going to be how the fan community is going to you know kind of digest all of this i know we're going to be working overtime to you know the analyze digest. all that content man <laughs> i know it's and it's just going to be so exciting to I be know. able to dive into that and have those discussions again because we're we're going to have that new content obviously we've had the comics that have come out which is great we haven't even you know we haven't even taken the deep dive to get into those and we will, we will, but you know, there's just something different about having like episodes and being able to like dive deep into those. And you're like, Oh man, what do we like? We got to dive deep. What are we going to talk about here? Looking what do we think? Easter eggs too. Cause imagine how many Easter eggs of content there's going to be from things that were in the original series that are kind of going to be skimped on in this one, but they might just put very subtly, like very subtle things like, Oh, remember this? Like just small homages here and there. Like, I feel like that's going to be a lot of the series too is new content, but at the same time trimming the fat of some of the stuff that was, you know, put in there gimmicky stuff that they're just like, you know what? It's not going to add as much value this time around. So we'll drop it, but we'll just put a little something in here. Cause you know, as much as I want to see the foaming mouth guy in the cabbage market, I <laughs> That if they are going to explore more mature themes, um, I can see a lot of tongue-in-cheek uh, humor and stuff. But I imagine some of the slapstick is probably going to be downplayed a little bit if they do go a more mature route. Um, but I would still like to see like small homages here and there to some of these really classic gags because that's also going to be something special for those of us who saw the original series. It's a small gift to us saying like, you know almost like a thank you. Like 
we know that this meant something to you. And while it doesn't really have a place in the new series and the reboot, um, here is our gift to you uh, to, for being with us, for following us on this journey. Like I can see them doing that. And that's kind of what I'm hoping for. Not to say that I in any way, shape or form dictate what they do, but I really do feel like that's definitely going to be something that uh, I will be looking for when I start watching. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah, and I, I, I think a lot of the same thing for me in terms of what I'm anticipating. It's I'm just so excited for them to, you know, answer a lot of questions and to give us give us new questions, <laughs> new things to be like puzzled about and theorize about and everything. Because again, I, I just I love this world so much. It's I, I mean, it is it is one of my favorite just fantasy worlds ever created. It is right up there with Middle Earth for me. And it, it is just, I mean, in terms of just like the depth and detail and how unique it is and how encompassing it is of so many different cultures. And that's what I I think, you know, it's so encouraging to hear that they are just really prioritizing that with the casting, with what they want to do in terms of like how the show is represented and knowing that they're going to have the, that support from Netflix that they're not going to have to fight tooth and nail just to show a like a same sex relationship, or that they're going to have to fight tooth and nail to show a character dying. No, <laughs> I mean, it's, I mean, it's it, it it really just it was it was such a fascinating thing to me that they fought had the fight so hard for it because there was some content that they showed so freely. I mean, they showed Monk Giazzo's skeleton. And we know it's him. It is identified as him. And yet throughout the series, they had to fight for ground on some of these complex issues, issues that they really represented really well. Like if I think, I mean, I watched it as a teenager. I can't imagine the impact it would, it, it probably had on kids that are even younger than that, because we don't talk about moral complexity often with kids. We try to brush it off. Mm. I experience it every day at my job when people ask me about animal body parts. And I look, <laughs> I give the parents that knowing look like, do you really want me to go into this? Because I will tell your child exactly what they are looking at and what it is used for because I don't find it uh, inappropriate. I find it natural. And I think it's a great discussion to have because regardless of how much you shelter your children, they're going to be exposed to things that are out of your control when they leave the house and, you know, Avatar really drove home some really dark themes in really good ways. Um, the way that Aang ends up needing to cope with a lot of his problems, the support he ended up having, the messages of hope and positivity that ended up, especially in the Guru episode, I mean, mm -hmm. were just really powerful. I remember bawling my eyes out through that whole episode, Absolutely. especially when he had to confront uh, the loss of the air nomads and you, and you realize that burden he had been carrying as a, essentially a child, despite his age. Um, it was really, really touching, really deep and just so emotional. And I appreciated it so much as a teenager that I can't imagine how that impacts kids who haven't been presented with these issues yet. And I really think that it's important that TV shows do handle these issues carefully, but still not shy away from them because, you know, really well-rounded, caring, empathetic adults come from exposure to other people and other cultures and understanding that it is not just them and their perspective that matters. It is other people that it's a complex world and, you know, 
it is important that we take things into consideration very carefully. We shouldn't just shrug off other people's feelings and perspectives because they don't align with our own. And that was really a big message in the series, mm-hmm. in both series, yep. was the complexity of the world and how no issue is straightforward. You know, everybody was just like, and kill Ozai. That's just, that's the end goal. And kill Ozai. It was black and white. And the series is like, no, no, this is a very gray matter. He has, you know, Aang lives on this, you know, moral tightrope of what he owes to his culture and his people and his upbringing and what the world expects of him. And he walked that gray line as finely as he could without really seceding too much to either side. He always tried to pay homage to his roots while still respecting the people in his life at the time who were different. And that is a theme that I look forward to seeing again because it's really just not said loud enough in the world today. So well put. That was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, you know, and I, I think we're going to, we'll, we'll wrap things up because, you know, and the thing is, what's really exciting is that, you know, as more news comes out, we're going to be here to talk about it uh, because I know that just as you know, things were in the old series and with Cora, it's just like as stuff came out, it was just, all right, man, we got a lot to talk about. What are we going to, you know, theorize about, you know, this is so exciting. We have any, all we have for images is that one landscape artwork, which is absolutely beautiful. It really is. Of Aang standing in the tundra with Appa, putting his hand up to Appa's face. And what's really cool is that that was actually, uh, it was based off of one of Brian's uh, original concept pieces that he worked on. And uh, when he posted this in like this year, he said it was a 16 year old pencil sketch. Oh my God. So this was something that was like at such an early stage of development. And they actually include his original illustration in the art behind the animated series book uh, for avatar and I remember when they released this image, I was like, oh, my God, that's what that is. But it's this beautiful new rendering to it. And if I mean, if anything, to give you a testament of like, you know, what they're going to be planning, they dove deep back to the original concepts of where this show got its roots. And that was the image that they chose to present to the world. Hey, we've got a live series. This is what you know, this is what we're going to go for. And, uh, you know, like I said, we'll wait for more news to come out. And as soon as stuff does come out, uh, we will be recording, uh, as quickly as possible and getting our opinions on this. But more importantly, we want to hear how, uh, you guys, the listeners are feeling about this too. I know that the discussion has, when it first came out, it was rampant with all kinds of different theories and opinions and everything. And I just loved taking in all of that. So we would love to hear from you guys and do a follow-up episode. Um, obviously we'd love to get more of the, uh, the team in here too, to get, uh, like, you know, their feedback and opinions. So what I would love to do, uh, if you guys can reach out to us either on our Facebook page at the legend of portal cast, tweeted us at Portalcast pod or email us at legend of at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you uh, and just you know get your thoughts on this and include it in part of our discussion as we revisit this news and as we revisit as more news comes along because boy it's coming and it's coming soon and it, <laughs> we are we are at the end we are nearing the end of 2018 and this series is coming out in 2020 so we are 
we're gosh it's just so exciting i i <laughs> i forget sometimes and abigail will be like hey do you know there's an Ab- there's an avatar last airbender series code i'm like oh my god <laughs> <laughs> but uh but yeah so um again uh kristen thank you so much uh for joining in today um and uh to listeners guys thank you so much for listening um thank you so much for uh sticking with us during our uh, hiatus last time and everything uh, we're so excited to be back now that it's winter time things have calmed down for you at the aquarium kristen and things have calmed <laughs> down for me with wedding season and it's like now i can get back into that sweet nerdy avatar groove <laughs> I am I am so excited. The conspiracy theories will start rolling and I am <laughs> stoked to people because that's I, I think that's probably the thing I remember most about our original website too. Mm-hmm. Avatar Portal. It was the conspiracies <laughs> as things were rolling out and I am so stoked to jump back on that bandwagon. Oh my gosh, where will the bejeweled monkey be? You know that we're going to be hunting for that in the yes. series and be like, "Oh, there's the bejeweled monkey." It's you know the good. it's it's the pirate organization. <laughs> Uh, all right. Well, thank you guys all so much again for listening and uh, be tuned again. And we'll uh, have our uh, new episode uh, two weeks from now. We uh, come out with new episodes every other Monday. And remember, you can find us at Facebook uh, at The Legend of Portalcast, on Twitter at Portalcast Pod, on Instagram at Legend of Portalcast. And uh, you can always reach out to us on email at Legend of Portalcast at gmail.com. And for now, let us leave. Ha, ha, ha.